This is a recording from Reunions Weekend 2009 at the University of Virginia, made possible by the university's Office of Engagement. In pre-kindergarten classrooms across the United States, toddlers are learning and are getting ready for kindergarten. Dr. Jason Downer, senior research scientist at the Center for Advanced Study of Teaching and Learning, described the long-term benefits of high-quality pre-kindergarten education. He showed how an investment in such education can result in higher lifetime wages, lower rates of disability assistance, and many more self-reliant, contributing members of our community. And thanks, everybody, for coming early on such a beautiful day. We'll try not to keep you in here too long. Um, and thanks for bringing the young ones along, too. Perfect session for them. Uh, so I am here to tell you a little bit about the work that, that Bob Piantz and I and a number of our colleagues have been doing over the last few years and will be doing into the next couple years around how to try and give uh, young children a head start uh, on learning. And, and learning not just in the sense of knowing your ABCs and, and language development, but also social development and, and emotional development. Uh, and specifically, I'm going to talk about uh, sort of thinking about the transition to school and, and not just a four-year-old becoming a five-year-old and getting into the K-12 system, but, but even you know, think about it as you know, a child who's in daycare, child care, early preschool, you know, thinking already about how are we helping them to get ready to go into the K-12 system. Um, and a big piece that I'll focus on and that we've done some research on is how important uh, teachers are and particularly how they interact with the kids. Um, as early as, as early daycare and, and, quite honestly, up into college classrooms. You probably all had lots of interactions even with college teachers and know that, that how they relate to you, um, you know, how they implement their lesson plans makes a big difference in whether you care about what they're talking about, you know, whether you learn it. Um, so it really spans you know, the, the whole learning continuum. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. We're a small group, okay? So if you've got a question as I'm going, just raise your hand, pop up, let me know, and I'm happy to slow down and, and talk about it as we go. But I'll, I'll also leave time for questions at the end. <clears throat> so why should we pay attention to these early years? Um, I've, I've had to give less and less of a big pitch on this recently because there's been a lot of stuff in the media, a lot of funding at the state and federal level focused on young kids. Um, and a lot of this is based on the fact that, that there's been a lot of research that looks at children early on and follows them into adulthood. And what we can see is that how children are doing early um, heavily, heavily predicts how they do later in terms of employment, in terms of um, you know, whether or not they're um, contributing as, as successful citizens in the, in the U.S. Um, and what we've also discovered is there have been some studies of early preschool and daycare experiences that show that... Um, if you intervene early on, uh, you get a lot of payback down the road. Uh, actually, a couple of years ago, James Heckman, who's an economist, um, actually won the Nobel Prize. Uh, and he won the Nobel Prize around this idea that investing dollars early in two, three, four-year-olds um, is going to pay off uh, greater dividends down the road than, say, waiting until high school to change class size. Or, you know, so not that that not all of these things are, aren't very important, but that you get more bang for your buck um, if you're really paying attention to um, helping kids grow early. Unfortunately, some other things that have come up is to show that um, our children make a lot of transitions early on. You know, they may go from one childcare to the next, or, or from a more daycare arrangement to a, to a more school-focused preschool, and then again to kindergarten. Um, 
And if these discontinuities during the transitions can be a real challenge um, you know, to the, re the regulatory abilities of young ones. So again, it's, it's a time where there's a lot of change going on. So um, it makes sense to pay attention to trying to create connections and relationships that can support kids as they're making a lot of these changes um, early. Just to highlight some of the, the discontinuities I'm talking about. So um, there are a lot of changes in what, what, uh, what's expected of kids you know, from preschool to kindergarten, even from classroom to classroom around what, what sort of demands, what are the expectations for sitting um, and doing work by yourself, um, for waiting in line to go to the bathroom or to brush your teeth. Um, there are a lot of differences across things. And so, and these become more formalized over time. And so this is a, a, a big kind of misalignment between earlier care environments and, and later educational environments. The complexity of this, the social setting also changes. Um, so you think about a preschool where, where children are often, um, there's only a couple of classrooms, maybe at most. Some family daycares, there's just one place. There's one set of kids. Uh, you move into a school environment, we have lots of classrooms, children who are spread out much more in age. You have, uh, you have recess and you have uh, lunchtime in which they sort of mix everybody up and it's a, a much more complex social environment that again, can be a challenge for, for young kids. Um, there also tends to be a little bit less um, connection between teachers and schools and families themselves as children move through that early childhood period. Another thing that's changing. And then the, it's also been documented that the actual time that a child gets one-on-one -on -one with teachers tends to start declining as they hit K through 12. You know, there are a lot of changes happening for kids, and so we have to think about what are the ways that we can create connections and continuity for them? Um, so during these changes, they have a sense that, that somebody's holding their hand um, and that they're you know, going to successfully make their way into the, the K through 12 system. Bob and some others did some research a, a number of years ago on transition practices, which is you know, what are schools doing to try to help during this time to help kids make this, this leap? Um, and some of the most common things that uh, kindergarten teachers reported doing, uh, a lot of them said that they were talking with parents once school got started. Okay, so school's going on and, so, and maybe a conference happens or a phone call. Um, maybe a letter gets sent home that says, you know, make sure that this happens, this happens, this happens for my classroom. Um, and there's oftentimes this big open house. Um, but you might notice that a lot of those say after school starts, right? Um, things that happen far less often um, are more per personalized than earlier things. So, so schools have had a hard time reaching back uh, and starting a little bit earlier, right? So uh, making a phone call or a visit ahead of school starting. Um, you know, doing something that, that's going to create a more seamless connection between families and schools. Um, and <clears throat> So what, what we're finding is that a lot of times you're seeing more generic contacts between schools. And when I say school, I mean largely the, the elementary schools uh, and families. Uh, and between schools and early care environments like a preschool uh, or a daycare. And these things happen after school. So time and time again, we've been hearing parents say, Get us the information early. Talk to us early. Ask me about my child. Get to know the child so that it'll be a, a seamless transition. The other theme here is that oftentimes the transition stuff 
is happening at schools. You know, schools sometimes don't do a great job of moving their way out into the community and meeting families where they're at. Um, and so this is another thing that's, that's not happening a good deal. So largely the, the, the take-home point is that schools are trying, but a lot of their communication efforts to create this link so that children make a sec successful transition ha has happened a little bit too late. Um, it's not always as personal uh, as families are looking for. Um, and it's just not quite enough. It's not comprehensive enough. There are a couple reasons for this, and, and uh, we've talked with folks and think that one of it is that uh, schools are largely thinking about the transition for kids um, as being, in some ways, uh, that the child is responsible in a lot of ways for making that leap. So that a child has uh, a lot of skills that they're developing in homes as they're growing up and in preschool, um, and that they're then supposed to just take those skills with them into the next environment, into kindergarten, for instance. Uh, so in that, in that regard, the, the responsibility falls on the child to, to make this leap, right? But we know that the child's not alone in this world and that there's a lot going on around them that's either going to serve as a barrier to them making a successful transition and learning uh, or that could be very supportive. So uh, I'd like you to think more about the child being in this system where they're relating to people and settings all the time. And those, those people can really be a support and they typically tend to stay with them over time. So how are there ways that we can create some continuity from early years, preschool, daycare, into the K-12 system in these connections, right? So the relationship between families and teachers, which may look a certain way in preschool but then changes. How, how can we think about ways to keep those connections stable over time? So there are lots of places to focus on here. Um, I'll talk about a couple of them, then I'm going to go in a little deeper on one in particular. So one thing is to try to think about ready schools. And when I say ready schools, I mean that schools try to take a little bit more responsibility for reaching backward towards families before they get to them, um, to coming out in the community, uh, and not just thinking that they have to wait until children show up on the doorstep for kindergarten and that that's when, when it all starts, right? But to try to start a little bit earlier. Um, another big piece is that... Um, Helping to support healthy kids early on is not just about schools and families. It's about a community at large. So how can the community members kind of get together and rally around this? Um, a big one is uh, kindergarten registration sometimes is a real mess in, in some communities. Um, so how can you get the word out? Are there uh, grocery stores that can post flyers? Um, can you get libraries on board? Can you get pediatricians that are talking with families? who they know have kids who are about to head into that um, five-year-old range. Um, what are ways that we can get communities to also be supportive? You know, families, what are, what are ways that schools can help families be involved, um, either in knowing something about what that child's going to experience at school or what things could be happening at home that would align well with what teachers will expect of kids when they show up in school. Uh, and then the other link is preschools and child care. So, um, there has been sort of a, a disconnect between the early childhood world and the K through 12 world in that, um, you know, there are uh, sort of different curricula, there are sometimes different expectations, different experiences, and that can be a little bit shocking for kids as they move from one to the other, right? Because they don't, you know, they expect, they hear school, and then they move into kindergarten, and that school experience may be very different for them. So how can we get preschools, kindergartens talking to each other so they don't have to look the same? 
but can they be talking to each other so they can at least be helping kids make that transition a little smoother? So a big part of that, and, and uh, a lot of the work that we do at Castle that Jay mentioned, the research center, is focused on an aspect of um, trying to create continuity of classroom experiences for kids. And it's all focused on the fact that uh, a central piece of these classrooms are teachers and what they do, how they set up their classrooms and how they interact with their kids. And if we can focus on that, uh, and trying to make sure that that stays of high quality and consistent over time, that, that children are going to benefit from that. There's lots of things that, that contribute to teachers um, you know, making a positive experience for kids. Um, some folks have looked at qualifications. You know, should we make sure that all teachers have a certain type of degree or, or a certain background? Um, you know, how much experience do teachers need to provide really high-quality experiences for kids? Is it many, many years? Can we do something to help um, you know, early career teachers be you know, doing the same thing and as positive as, as uh, teachers who've been around for a while? And our focus has sort of shifted away from those first two things and thought, um, regardless of those, those sorts of things lead to a teacher to do certain things in the classroom. And so our focus has been more on how are teachers interacting with students um, from early on to later in school. What are the sort of relationships that they're building with their students and the kids? Um, how are they implementing um, the activities around instruction? And it's really those little interactions that happen every second in a classroom that really makes the difference to uh, develop healthy children. So you can think about all these things over on the left that are, that are possible contributions to students learning and to teachers being satisfied with their jobs. But what I'm going to propose and, and talk to you a little bit about is that those things really only matter as much as they change how teachers and students are interacting with each other in the classroom. Um, and that's really how we end up with kids learning and developing socially. Um, and a big piece that, that we're focused on from an education school, of course, um, is the teacher and how the teacher can um, interact in these ways to lead to these outcomes. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's actually happening out there in classrooms. And this, is, this covers a couple of studies that um, go from daycare, uh, where kids are as, as young as uh, six months, uh, all the way up into uh, early elementary school. There are these few longitudinal studies. We're talking about basically about 1,000 different settings here that cross that time period. You're not going to find any other uh, information that's, that has this sort of systematic observations where we sent people into these settings um, and made ratings of what was going on. I also want to point out that, that all these teachers are, are fully credentialed and certified. So you know, uh, teachers across the country, we have a lot of range in this, especially in early childhood. Uh, and these teachers in particular were, were certified. So some of what we find out is that a lot of the interactions or the activities that are happening in classrooms are either whole group, which would be sort of like this, kind of a lecture style with a, with a teacher having a big group of, of students in front of her. Um, or, especially in elementary school, um, individual seat work, which is more sort of the worksheet, kind of rote type of activities. Okay, th those really predominate um, what happens in classrooms around interactions and activities. There's actually uh, shockingly little real interactions between individual students and the teacher. You know, so much more often they're, they're happening like this. And they're not happening where I would be talking kind of one-on-one -on -one and interacting with a, a particular student. 
this probably doesn't come as any surprise. In terms of content in these early years, um, you know, alphabet knowledge, early literacy, early language development is a heavy, heavy focus in these classrooms. Um, and an important thing to know is that, you know, there's a lot of variation here. So uh, a child from one year to the next has very little promise that they'll, be, they'll remain in a, a classroom that looks the same as it did the year before. In fact, as they get into later elementary school and they start switching classrooms throughout the day, um, there's also very little promise that going from Mrs. X's classroom to Mr. Y's um, will feel very similar to them. In fact, they're going to be quite different, regardless of content, but just the way that people are interacting with each other are going to look very different. There's a lot of, of, of change across these things. Um, and even more important to point out is that these educational opportunities are very uneven um, in terms of especially kids who are coming from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, they tend to select into classrooms that are of lower uh, quality interactions than those who are coming from families that are better off. So those kids that are in most need of some of these high quality experiences aren't getting them. So our focus has shifted then towards thinking about how do we observe uh, interactions between teachers and students. And there's an instrument called the class uh, that Bob and several have developed um, that looks specifically at what teachers do to promote uh, academic learning and social learning. <clears throat> and they're organized into three uh, broad areas, which I'll talk to you about in a second. Um, the first one is uh, emotionally supportive interactions. So these are things like uh, creating a really warm climate where, where kids are enjoying learning, where there's a lot of smiling going on, where the teacher and the students are connected to each other. You know, they have a relationship. Uh, teachers notice when individual children need something different than the whole class and they respond in that sort of way. Um, they provide opportunities for kids to be able to share their own perspectives and to be somewhat autonomous in the classroom um, in addition to following the lead of the teacher. Then we've got another set of interactions that we look at which is called sort of organizational support or how the classrooms manage. And this is, you know, supports the kids so that they can regulate their behavior. Um, to make sure that they're staying focused and on task and engaged in an activity that's going to help them to develop. And then the final piece uh, is a really important piece, which is these instructional supports. And this is the type of questions that teachers ask, the type of feedback, the type of modeling of language they give that helps students to um, take the material they're learning and actually really think about it, graph, grapple with it, even at a three and four year old, um, to be thinking uh, about what's being presented to them and understand it. Uh, so not just learning facts, you know, not just learning um, what the letter A looks like, capital and lowercase, um, but knowing how to, you know, knowing how to use it, um, being able to compare and contrast shapes, uh, you know, really actually getting to think about, about things. So we went into all these classrooms. What does this look like? Um, well, on a scale from one to seven, with seven being high, a classroom you'd really want your child to be in, okay? Um, by and large, uh, most classrooms fall under that little bump there, okay? So the majority of classrooms are, are somewhat high up on the scale in terms of emotional support, um, a little bit under a five. Same thing with organizational support. Classrooms are generally pretty organized um, across the country. Uh, but the shocking thing is that in terms of these um, you know, thought-provoking questions, modeling of language, um, the things that are really helping uh, drive learning are not happening that often uh, in, in classrooms. And this doesn't 
doesn't matter whether it's a, a daycare or preschool or even later elementary. This is a similar pattern uh, that you're seeing. So you might ask, does this really matter? And, and so we've also looked at how these things relate to um, children's development. And we've, sort of, we've, we've provided some study designs so that we, we take out of the picture everything else that might contribute to children's development, everything the families that are doing that are so important, um, other things that are happening, things about the child. Um, and then we specifically look at how these interactions contribute to, to changes in development. What we see is, is somewhat small effects, which isn't surprising, um, because we know how important families are and how some of the characteristics that children bring to, to classrooms really play a large role in what they learn. Um, but we do see these small effects, and these are small effects within a year that can be compounded over time, meaning that you know, small effect one year, another year, you know, together, each little bit um, is a foundation that child builds on moving forward. There's also much stronger effects of, of the types of interactions I've been talking about for certain groups of kids. So um, you know, those kids that we might think of as at risk for having difficulty in school and later on, so those coming from less advantaged families, those who show early adjustment problems for whatever reason uh, early in school uh, are really benefiting a lot from these, these classrooms that are higher in the quality of their interactions. Um, so in fact, for those kids, um, about half of the achievement gap in a year can be closed if they're in a really highly uh, in supportive environment. So you can think about it, that's just one year. Now I mentioned that it's very hard for kids to find themselves in that environment for multiple years in a row. But we as, a, a, as an education system haven't figured out how to do that very well yet. But if you can get a child in a classroom like that, it's going to close the gap. <clears throat> just to give you an example of the types of things these are related to, um, See, emotional support there is related to, to changes during preschool and things like um, social skills, like being assertive, um, uh, being able to ask for what you want, um, a reduction in, in problem behaviors, which could be a lot of things. You know, it could be uh, you know, clinginess. It could be um, you know, minor kinds of aggression. Then the instructionally supportive interactions leads to a lot of the academic uh, development that, that you'd be looking for in preschool language. Um, Kids talking, being able to understand talk, and early literacy and math. So bear with me on this. I'm going to try to walk you through this, this complicated graph here. So over on the left, those are scores on an academic achievement test. Okay. The higher, the better. Um, and on the bottom, we're looking at uh, groups of kids who are in uh, very low instructionally supportive classrooms, moderately and high. Uh, and the light-colored bars are kids who come from families that are, are pretty well off uh, socioeconomically. So there's not really any difference for those kids coming from a, a, a background, a family background that's pretty high SES, in terms of what the classroom brings. But when you look at kids who uh, are coming who need more support, uh, they uh, essentially, as the classroom supports grow, their achievement uh, basically looks or parallels the achievement of kids who are coming from, from families that have a lot more supports for them. So basically what this is showing is those kids who are at risk, if you can make sure that they get these really highly supportive classroom experiences, um, they're going to achieve or learn at the same rate as, as those kids who um, you know, have benefited from more support prior to getting into that classroom. So just to show you, there's the same pattern 
with a different risk variable. So kids who come in and their kindergarten teacher says um, they're having some trouble adjusting to the classroom, they too, if they're in a really highly emotionally supportive classroom, um, are able to achieve similarly to those kids who, who don't have any adjustment problems heading into school. So I, I put these up here just to show you how important um, these types of interactions are in classrooms, particularly for those kids who, who may uh, be at risk for struggling early on. So, so what's the implications of this for, um, for early childhood and then up, up into elementary school and beyond? <clears throat> One of it is, let's focus the regulation for, and training for teachers on these types of interactions, right? So um, you know, if, we have, if we're pushing standards, and there's a big push in the country right now uh, from Obama and everyone else to try to provide some standards, more standards for teachers um, and measures of what they're doing. And if we're going to do that, it makes a lot of sense to focus on those things that are helping children learn. Uh, and it, it appears that it's these interactions. We think the implications are to try to work on those instructional interactions that are really low on the scale. You know, there's a lot of room for improvement there um, and try to move them up. So we've been working on trying to develop some training and support of teachers that directly addresses these interactions. <clears throat> and to really systematically and scientifically use standardized observations um, to give feedback to, to teachers about what they're doing and to help them build their practice. So I actually saw, I think it was in the New York Times, but it was talking about the DC public schools. There's a lot of things out there about how can we incentivize teachers to do the things that helps, help students learn. And one of them is to pay folks more. And they were, they're starting a charter school where I think the average pay for teachers is 125K a year. And they're, they're looking to attract folks you know, who wouldn't normally teach um, in a public school. Uh, so you can do that, right, uh, and try to incentivize people to teach. But, but we'd like to propose that that should be tied somehow to these interactions that we know are important, right? Not, not just to a degree that a teacher brings into the classroom uh, or credentials, but also, you know, what, what, are, what are things that are happening in there so that we know that students are learning? It's different in different places. I know, you know, there are sort of alternative certification programs where they'll try to pull folks, like, out of engineering to teach physics or, or math. Um, there's, uh, some folks might know Teach for America, which, which draws from all kinds of disciplines across campuses to try to get uh, college students to come in and uh, <laughs> uh, to come into teaching who, who might nor not normally do that. So we've identified that these interactions are important in classrooms. Um, and so what do we do to make sure they happen? There's lots of things over on the left we can do. Um, we can try to create curriculum that lead to these interactions. Um, what we're doing is mostly focusing on professional development and training. Uh, and Jay mentioned that we're working on this thing called My Teaching Partner. I'm just going to give you a, a very brief um, overview of it. What we're doing is working with preschool teachers across the country. And um, we're using the class, which is this thing that talks about the interactions that are important, um, as the basis for providing them with feedback. And the goal is to um, help teachers to be really good at observing what they do in the classroom um, outside of the moment. Um, so it involves videotape. Uh, and it involves uh, consultation over time with a, with a consultant that that works with them. <clears throat> there are a couple things that, that they get access to. One is uh, we have this large library of videos from real classrooms that shows teachers interacting with kids in really positive, high-quality ways. 
And so we make this available to the teachers so that they can go and see lots of other teachers with different sets of kids um, you know, uh, doing these types of interactions to try to draw from that, to both get good at looking at it and understanding what these things are and then using it for their own practice. But the key piece that we're doing, uh, which is really exciting, and, and we're not the only ones, there's a lot of this consultation and coaching happening across the country, um, where a teacher actually has a videotape in the, in the classroom and, and videos what she's doing during a lesson. And this can be in preschool, you know, all the way up, and we have folks doing this in, the, in high schools now. Then he or she has a consultant who edits this down and then has the teacher watch very short aspects of their interactions with kids. And, Think about what are you doing here that's helping those children learn in this moment. Um, they post this all on a secure uh, online interface. The teacher reviews these, responds to some of the questions and prompts that the, that the consultant made, and then they have a conference which they talk about it. And so it's all focused, again, on these types of interactions that we know help children learn. Um, and it's giving teachers support, not in a critical way, not in a evaluative way, but in a way that they can sort of step outside of their daily practice and really look at and understand what they're doing with the kids and what, what makes a difference, and to build on that over time. And this happens you know, throughout the school year. It's not a one-and-done kind of a thing. At this point, a member of the audience observed that teachers who do not have the ability to foster positive interactions could potentially change a child's whole being. Sure. No, it, it's, it's true that, that there are certain aspects of these interactions that are a real challenge for certain teachers. And so, you know, what happens is that, that a consultant works very closely to build a trusting relationship with the teacher. Um, so sometimes they don't tackle those real tough ones first. You know, sometimes they'll tackle something that's a strength of the teacher and to really bolster it and make sure that he or she recognizes that and does it even more. And then as they're more comfortable with the videotaping and, and you know, having this sort of interaction over time with the consultant, they can start to tackle some of those things that, that might be challenging. And I can tell you that, you know, there are a lot of folks who say, I'm never going to do this with you, and, and very much buy in and, and really enjoy it. Uh, so it's, and, and, and what I'll show you here is we actually have some results that say it actually works. Um, so with a, with a large group of teachers, um, we gave some of them only access to those videos that I showed you. Um, and throughout the year, their sensitivity basically stayed the same, even went down a little bit. But those who got this one-on-one -on -one consultation throughout the year um, made gains in how sensitive they were responding to their kids, um, which is one of those things you might think is, is like a personality characteristic that would be difficult to alter, but in fact is, is, is not. And this, this type of process helps teachers to become more confident, because even the things they're doing well, um, a lot of teachers aren't recognizing it, because they're not getting a lot of feedback about it. So this allows them to get that feedback. Yeah, yeah, and build off of a strength. Um, we're seeing those same kind of gains in a, in a lot of different types of interactions. Um, and we're also showing that, that kids in these classrooms um, in the early years are making gains in early literacy outcomes and, and um, social outcomes. And then later, there's, there's also a project going on in middle and high school. Um, they're showing that, children, that the students in those classrooms are, are looking a little more motivated and engaged in classrooms where their teachers are getting this kind of support. Another thing with the middle and high school teachers is that they seem to be more satisfied with their job, more motivated, and feel like a sense that they're part of something bigger and not just isolated, which a lot of teachers report. 
So I'm going to wrap up so you can ask questions you might have. You know, the, the real take-home here is that a key to children doing well, starting early on and then into elementary school, is um, that, that, that school is an effective piece, and the, the important part of it is these interactions in the classroom. So, um, you know, so as, uh, you know, we encourage parents to get into classrooms and see what's actually happening there. Find out, you know, find out how, how uh, teachers are interacting with kids. Because these things, you know, you can see these things happening. You know, we have this measure that you can go in and describe them and, and uh, quantify them in, in a way. And the, more, the most exciting part is that, you know, you can, it looks like you can support and change these things too. Um, and so you know, we're, we're attempting to try to do that through some of Castle's work, um, both in Virginia and, and across the country. Um, and are excited to see that this type of coaching, consultation, and support to teachers seems to be spreading uh, and, and more funding being available for it. So, An audience member next asked, how Downer and his team find and train the consultants they work with? Yeah, we've, we've trained folks a number. So it's a pretty intensive training experience to be a consultant. Um, people usually have had experience in the classroom in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and, uh, but sometimes they're, they've just finished being uh, a center director. You know, they've been a teacher at a preschool, but they, they kind of worked up the ladder. They're center director, and, they, you know, and then they decided they wanted to do something different. Um, we had folks with a speech and language degree. Um, we've had folks who are clinical psychologists. You know, um, so we've, we've trained a number of different people who have been successful in that role. Um, but it's not easy. Because it's, it's sort of a different way of thinking about teaching, too. Um, this this real it's not focused on the curriculum or the you know the lesson plans as much it's taking those and what do you do with them when you start talking with your kids about them right um, so it's a little different twist than than some folks are used to in providing support to teacher. The next question was about accountability and whether or not Downer and his team could measure the effects of positive interactions on test scores throughout a child's life. Yeah, we have, and it, you know it's relatively early and. So our work has done that. Some other folks at different universities who have a slightly different way of, of doing this coaching, um, but they've also found positive benefits for, for kids. Um, you know, I know particularly in early childhood, um, but then I, I showed some of that stuff in middle school and high school. Uh, we're actually working with a very large group um, with some Gates Foundation money um, coming up to look at these types of things to answer that exact question, but for, for high school. Um, and all the different content areas, so math, um, uh, I think uh, history, some of, the, some of the big areas. So uh, the, the point really is to try to think about how to uh, look at these interactions rather than just the student outcomes because it's the interactions that lead to those things. Um, and there are a lot of pitfalls for holding teachers accountable just to how students are learning because each classroom is different. Um, it's hard to, to measure that at a classroom level. Yeah, so it's it's we're trying to create, we're trying to use science to create some information that says this, you know, focusing on what teachers are doing makes a lot of sense for dollars, right? Um, and dollars have also been thrown a lot at just helping teachers get credentialed, but a lot of times the credentialing is focused on different things and not necessarily focused on helping teachers to learn better how to interact with their students. Um, it may be focused on other aspects of their job, which may or may not be related to students doing better. The next question dealt with the effects of budget cuts. Are programs to improve the performance of early childhood educators vulnerable to the downturn in the economy? It's a good question. Yeah. 
Um, I think there are a lot of avenues towards it. Um, one is that I was somewhat uh, really struck by how big of a budget some school districts have for what they would call teacher professional development. Uh, a lot of which is typically used for in-service dates, you know, where they'll bring in somebody to, to, to talk about a particular subject. Um, so there may be some ways, if, if this was made a priority in a school district, that some of those dollars that are already there um, you know, might be able to be used in different ways. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's one thing, but not everybody has, has those dollars. Um, you know, I, I do think it gets driven by policy. So um, policy either at the state level or the federal level about what is it that we're wanting to see in these classrooms and these schools, uh, and then that's where the money flows. Because even if it's a small pot of money, where is that pot of money, you know, going? Um, and, you know, I, we think it should be evidence-based, that it, you know, it should be based on um, what research is showing us from real classrooms. And a follow-up question related to the economy. One response to budget cuts is to increase class size. Is the ability of teachers to encourage positive interactions decreased when the student-to-teacher ratio is increased? I haven't looked at that yet. Um, a lot of the preschools we've been in, like for instance, we were in the state-funded preschool in Virginia, and they have a, a flat number, um, or they have, which is 16. So we weren't really able to look at variation in that, but I think as we get up into to, uh, elementary and, and middle and high, we should. Thank you all for coming. Appreciate it.